All right. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. Yes, welcome. I'm Anna. <laughs> and I'm Tim. You know, even though it was only two years ago, there was a lot of stuff I did not remember, especially scandal-wise. This was There was something in the air this year. I don't know. There was like a lot of scandals, mostly offstage, but, you know, affecting what was going on on stage. And I think it's very much like encapsulated by Kevin Spacey hosting you know, less than six months before he uh, gets finally taken down for his behavior, accused by our own Anthony Rapp. Yeah, I think on the same token, I think I I remember this Tony's differently than it actually happened. (laughs) Um, And it's been cool to do like a deep dive into it because I have learned that things I thought were true are not in actuality true. Ooh. Do you have an example, or do you want to save that for when we get there? We could save it for when we get there, but I think I was surprised at... One, this was like a surprisingly chaotic year. Oh, yes. And I don't think I really realized that until the process that we, you and I kind of go through to put this podcast together. Um, I think that this has been by far the hardest year to, like, enter. I think that the tone of this whole year and this whole ceremony, it feels a little bleak to like actually be able to look back at how like the past few years in American politics have like really worn me down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, well the the elephant in the room at the Tonys was was that this was the first post Trump election Tonys and like a lot of the recaps of the Tonys sort of mentioned that like the year before was Hamilton and everyone was like the country is going in a great direction like we're you know moving towards this progressive future and now everyone's like uh uh, maybe not (laughs) you know it's like a little more like we got uh you know sex criminal hosting because nobody else wanted to do it (laughs) yeah and also For the Tonys, this was, like, one of the worst viewership years in, like, kind of the recent block of Tonys. You know, you're coming off of this high from Hamilton where the numbers were better than they had ever been to, like, in the past five years, it had been, like, the lowest watched uh, Tony season. Yeah, it was, we've been kind of slacking on putting ratings numbers, but for this one, I guess we should give some stats. So it was on June 11th, 2017 um, at Radio City, and... About 6 million people watched, which was a 44% drop from the previous year. But, I mean, I think the Hamilton bump is such, like, an anomaly that you can't really... Mm-hmm. Like, I think those numbers are sort of... Like, they are low, but they're sort of in line with the non-Hamilton years surrounding yeah. it. So the best musical nominations... Or the best musical nominees were Dear Evan Hansen, which had nine nominations and won six. Come From Away, which had seven nominations and won one. Groundhog Day, which had seven nominations and won zero. And Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, which had 12 nominations and won two. The overview of the Tonys, I think it was just the Tony nominations from The New Yorker had kind of like a good summary of what we're talking about. And they said, it seems like a lifetime ago that Hamilton swept the 2016 Tony nominations and pointed us toward a bright progressive future. This year's nominations, which were announced Tuesday morning, don't have an all-conquering frontrunner, and they offer glimmers, even in hindsight, of the strange dark world we're living in now. There are dramas of frustrated factory workers, diplomatic failures, female liberation, and anti-Semitism, musicals about Russian aristocrats, teen isolation, and the triumph of Canadian kindness over xenophobia. And then there's Hello, Dolly, blissfully unaware of 21st century troubles, imploring us to put on our Sunday clothes and get out into the glistening world. No wonder it's a hit. So even though in the ceremony, like, I think Stephen Colbert is really the only one who you know, outright references Trump. And uh, it's my honor to be here tonight presenting the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. And it's been a great year for revivals in general, especially that one they revived down in Washington, D.C. It started off Broadway in the 80s, uh, way off Broadway over on Fifth Avenue. Huge production values. uh, Couple problems. Main character is totally unbelievable. And the hair and makeup, yeesh. Mm-mm. No. No. The, uh, this DC production is supposed to have a four-year run, but reviews have not been kind. Could close early. We don't know. We don't know. Best of luck to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. But there is this sort of, like, 
like shadow over everything. Yeah. And I feel like he's the only one that outrightly like says the name, but I feel like everyone's like in these dark times, like I know that this story is going to like reach the people who need it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds no, like true. very handmaid's tale, like yeah. bleak. It's very like now more than ever. <laughs> so I don't want to talk about Kevin Spacey yet. But yeah. we we will in a minute. But originally when we were talking about how to split these episodes up, we were gonna do Dear Evan Hansen and Great Comet in this episode because in my mind I thought those were the two front runners but like even someone who had been like following the season as like in real time I guess because it had the most nominations but um looking back at all of the sort of press around it nobody really thought that Great Comet like they thought it was a race between you know Dear Evan Hansen was definitely the front runner but people thought that Come From Away had a real shot the New York Times did their you know Tony voter overview that they always do Mm -hmm. um and they said The voters we interviewed, with a promise of anonymity for discussion of their secret ballots, were evenly divided between Dear Evan Hansen, which many called heart-wrenching, but some found morally off-putting, and Come From Away, which many declared inspiring, but some said was treacly. Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812, which received the most Tony nominations this year, does not seem to be a significant factor in the race for Best New Musical, nor is the fourth nominee an adaptation of the film Groundhog Day. (laughs) Which is very rude. Yeah, I was under the same impression because you were the person who I was talking about this with. (laughs) So before we kind of get into the season overall, this season was just plagued by scandal. (laughs) And like, besides, so we, you know, we have Kevin Spacey, bad man hosting. We have Charles Isherwood getting fired from the New York Times midseason because of his association with Scott Rudin and like a conflict of interest. So Jesse Green, he starts the season at Vulture at New York Magazine. And by the end of the season, he's like, you know, doing the critics rundown with Ben Brantley. And then we have, you know, another Scott Rudin thing where everyone was like, hello, Dolly isn't going to perform on the Tonys. Like, they only want to perform Penny in My Pocket, which we'll get into that later. But mm-hmm. Penny in My Pocket Gate. We have <laughs> two big scandals with the Great Comet, where, which we'll get into next time. But, you know, the casting controversy. And they also got sued by Ars Nova. The producers got sued. So it's like, what is wrong with everybody? It's just incredibly chaotic. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like you can tell by the ceremony that things are not good in the neighborhood (laughs) yeah yeah for one thing it's so fucking long the show yeah i I mean i don't feel like it's any longer than uh i feel like most of them are like 220 without commercials Mm -hmm. i mean it is it is long yeah but i don't think it felt especially long (laughs) yeah it's because there was so much kevin spacey yeah (laughs) maybe we should just discuss him because his presence is very upsetting (laughs) Yeah. So he opens the show as Evan Hansen. He does like a medley from all of the shows, but the content is just about how nobody wanted him to host. And it's like, get over yourself. This isn't what this is about. Have you ever felt like nobody would care? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of going live on air? Have you ever felt the ratings could disappear? That if you host... No one would cheer. And then later, like, it's like throughout the ceremony, he does all of these different characters, but they all use the same wig, like this gr- this white haired wig. And it's like he just had this one wig and like reverse engineered it. And he was like, oh, I'm going to do Johnny Carson. I'm going to do Bill Clinton. Uh, you know? Also, it's uh, when he's doing Bill Clinton and they like show audience shots. They're just like everyone's mouth is like everyone hates it. <laughs> he even does like a you know coming out of the or like staying in the closet joke with Whoopi and it's like leave Whoopi out of this Whoopi how long have you been in that closet (laughs) well Kevin it depends on who you ask well that also confused me a little bit because is Whoopi in the closet (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think it's been speculated i think it's just because she is kind of a noted bachelorette Mm -hmm. so people people always have some uh something to say about that 
but I actually loved what Whoopi was wearing. She looked like a goth jellyfish. Yes. It was like very Dementor chic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then right after his opening number, the first presenter is Scarlett Johansson, like yeah. another very controversial person. And I'm curious. They're like Tony Award winner Scarlett Johansson. And I haven't, I know I could actually just look this up, but what did she win for? She won for Review from the Bridge. That was oh. the, that was that really controversial Tony's where like all the movie stars were winning. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But it is very funny that she comes in and she announces Best Supporting Actor in a Play and Danny DeVito is nominated. He's the sole nomination that night for Arthur Miller's The Price. And (laughs) (laughs) his little, like award cam is like very cute (laughs) (laughs) i love and it's also like something else notable is that he's one of the only like big stars like big non-broadway stars who actually showed up because like you had kate blanchett nominated you had like a lot of celebrities nominated who were just not even there yeah nathan lane was in that same category and he was not there it's like way to bite the hand that's fed you nathan (laughs) (laughs) i know you got something better to do um was he in angels in america in england at that point we can look it up he might have been in england yeah he might have been but still he could come back for a night (laughs) (laughs) should we do come from away because they were the first performance or should we do dear evan hansen because it won let's do let's start with come from away i think that i think we need to get some steam going before we get into dear evan hansen (laughs) i agree i'm not emotionally prepared to deal with it so i didn't catch who introduces it i think it's a canadian athlete did you get his name i think his name is rob dugay he's a hockey player ron ron let me see i looked it up yeah ron dugay he's a very handsome hockey player from canada (laughs) so come from away open march 12th 2017 It is currently running. It's run for 1,056 performances as of the day we're recording. Book music and lyrics were by husband and wife team Irene Sankoff and David Hine, directed by Christopher Ashley, musical staging by Kelly Devine. Come From Away chronicles the real-life experiences of the people of Gander, Newfoundland, and the almost 7,000 airline passengers who were forced to land there when U.S. airspace was closed on September 11, 2001. Twelve actors tell the story of both the islanders and the plain people, revealing the fear and uncertainty that came with the terrorist attacks, as well as the profound generosity and compassion of strangers. So this ended up being... The surprise hit of the season, I think, mm-hmm. out of all the musicals this season, this and Dear Evan Hansen are the only ones that are still running. Yeah, and it's also one that I thought I had no interest in. And I actually think that, like, getting into the conversation about it, there's a good part from Ben Brantley's review that he kind of, like, calls out my um, <laughs> problems with it. Um <laughs> So he says, Come From Away sounds like a show that most New Yorkers would run a city mile to avoid. I mean, come on, guys. A feel-good 9-11 musical created by a husband and wife team whose most notable previous credit was something called My Mother's Lesbian Jewish Wiccan Wedding. (laughs) That's a self-spoofing concept that might have come up in a Saturday Night Live brainstorming session and been rejected on the grounds of bad taste. But I think that, you know, with that being said, it has like a lot of heart that I did not expect it to have. Yeah. And also like later on in that same review, he talks about how just like, you know, Mamma Mia opening right after 9-11 really helped. Like that was sort of what people needed at that time. He sort of and a lot of other reviewers also made the connection between like coming right on the heels of Trump's election, this story about people like opening their hearts to people from somewhere else, like their hearts in their homes was something that people, um, you know, obviously really responded to. Yeah, and I guess something that I didn't realize, but apparently Gander, Newfoundland was at one point like a crucial refueling stop in the days before long range jet travel. So I guess it was like a, you know, they have like one of the biggest airports, but it's actually like a very small town. Mm -hmm. So there were something like 7,000 passengers stranded for up to five days in a town with only 500 hotel rooms. I think that I thought that there were like 30 people. I thought, I don't think I like (laughs) realized that like, you know, there were literally thousands of people in like a town of less than 13,000 people. It's a pretty amazing story. And the the husband and wife team, they're not from Gambia but they are Canadian. They originally were talking about doing like a documentary style play like the Laramie Project, which is based on, you know, the murder of Matthew Shepard, where they went back and they interviewed all these people and created this sort of like its own theater Mm -hmm. style. Some of their other influences were um, Into the Woods, 
you know, which is about, you know, group responsibility and coming together as a community. And then also a chorus line in terms of using direct address to tell the story. And also Six Degrees of Separation, which is the same, pretty much the same reason that they give for a chorus line. Which was also on Broadway this this season, this 2017 season. Starring, um, well, not starring, but one of, my, one of my crushes from high school, who was Zanga, I used to read, who's now currently <laughs> in Slave Play, played the naked man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is, is he naked in Slave Play also? No, he's not naked, but he's in his underwear, so close enough. Nice. <laughs> you know, if you find your niche, you gotta work it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I think, and you and I talked about this a little bit, but I think this serves as a really interesting comparison to a show from the next season, or I guess it was already off-Broadway this season, but um, The Band's Visit, which is also about, like, The Band's Visit is, like, this show's, like, moody Middle Eastern cousin. (laughs) And I think it is kind of telling which one of them ended up taking home all the Tonys, but which one of them is still running. Mm -hmm. Something in this show really connects to people and connects to Taurus, which is, like, the... You know, if you have a show that's running for more than a year, like that's who most of your audience is going to be, which I think is uh, is great. You know, I love a little show that could. Especially one that it has like a decent message to it. And they even start in a similar way. Like, you know, they perform the opening number here, which is like a song that's like, welcome. You know, <laughs> if you start your show with a welcome song, like you got to do that one on the Tonys. But The band's visit also opens with Welcome to Nowhere. Mm -hmm. So if anyone has done any kind of like deep dive, sort of like structurally and thematically comparing these two shows, please drop us that link because I'm very interested to read it. No, totally. It's also just like funny because both of them have a score that's so infused by like the sounds of the location. Yes. And I think that this is something that actually surprised me about Come From Away is like it does have this like river dance (laughs) feel to it. But then I like looked up and like learned what what types of people live in Newfoundland and that, you know, there's like a large Irish population and, you know, it was a British colony. The composing team talks about how what inspired them to do it as a musical and not as a play is that they visited Gander. And maybe it was for like the 9-11, like the 10 year Mm -hmm. they were in like the hockey rink which is where they held it and they had like a band playing and everyone was celebrating and really joyful and they were like, this story is better told through music and through like this style of music. Yeah, and I think that it comes across as like not necessarily show music, but like the music of this little town. Like I either read or listened to an interview where someone describes these things called kitchen parties um, that take place in Newfoundland. So like after you dig out your, you know, you get like 10 feet of snow and after you like dig out your car or whatever you like dig a little path over to your neighbor's house and then you just spend all day drinking and playing the fiddle in their kitchen (laughs) which sounds really fun (laughs) so you know they conducted all these interviews with people and a lot of the characters are composite characters but there are a couple that are just based on one person and I think the one that's most compelling for me is the Jen Colella character of Beverly Bass who is the Mm -hmm pilot she was the first female captain of american airlines she has one of the only solos in the show and they were basically like we were interviewing her and that song is like pretty much verbatim from our interview with her so and so there was the cute little you know profile of her um and jen colella and like her sort of journey with the show um and so since you know when you like as a retired pilot you can fly for free forever so she has seen the show 61 times from the very first production in La Jolla like and she will like bring other female pilots with her which I think is so sweet that's so oh my god So here's a little bit from that article. The two women text each other several times a week, and Ms. Bass has developed such an identification with her onstage depiction that she has cut her hair to more closely resemble that of Ms. Colella. Ms. Colella has incorporated Ms. Bass's mannerisms, a particular hand gesture she often makes, for example, into her performance. Her life story, recounted in a rousing four-and-a-half-minute song called Me in the Sky, is a near-verbatim transcript of her interview with the writers. It dramatically spells out her life, wrapping together the dreams of a little girl who wanted to fly, the gendered obstacles facing women in aviation in the mid-20th century, and the distinctive pain pilots felt at the use of airplanes as weapons on that terrible day. I thought it was going to be a triumph of women's song when Hillary was president. The song was going to be so fun because it was going to be like, look how far we've come, Miss Colella said. And now when I sing the song, it's completely different. It's like, look how far we have to go. 
Mm. And I also thought it was funny. It's very telling of what generation she's in because Beverly is like, I was never into women's lib. <laughs> like <laughs> calling it women's lib instead of feminism, I think is very sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like, you know, sometimes those examples of, you know, I think that you can only really get a character like that out of real life. And I think that that's like what feels so compelling about come from away for me in comparison to Dear Evan Hansen. And like, maybe it's just my own biases and knowing that one is based off of source material and one is kind of this fictitious story of like a kid in high school. Mm -hmm. But I think that like, for me, it's just like this, just knowing that, that the people who this story is based on have sat or, you know, most of them or a large number of them have sat and watched themselves on stage. You know, it just gives me chills. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. The musical has increased tourism in Gander 30% just in one year. Like there was an article about people going to visit Gander because of the musical. <laughs> well, to be perfectly honest, I was like, I wonder if I should go to Newfoundland. <laughs> it sounds really I mean, cool. It's, it is very compelling Newfoundland propaganda. And it's now it's beat the Drowsy Chaperone for the longest running Canadian musical on Broadway. A little trivia piece there. I love that. <laughs> now tourism is a billion dollar industry there. They're really, they're giving back. So there are some naysayers about making a feel-good musical out of like a traumatic event in our country about like how nice another country is. Mm. And I think the biggest, a little mini scandal maybe was um, Jesse Green's Vulture Review got a lot of pushback for this. And I think he ended up having to apologize. He made a statement on Facebook afterwards, but I couldn't find it because I think it got deleted or like the privacy was changed. This is from his review. If that sounds cynical, perhaps New Yorkers may be permitted a bit of side-eye about a work that borrows our local tragedy as background for 100 minutes of Canadian civic boosterism. And in the last 15 minutes, when it becomes clear that the emptying of the town as the airspace is open cannot in itself produce a rousing finale, the show loses all self-control with several postscript sequences telling us all the hilarious and touching things that happened to everyone over the next 10 years. The deaths of 3,000 people in New York and elsewhere are only gingerly mentioned. It's like the child who cries for equal attention when another child is hurt. That it may succeed in making the audience cry is a testament to its fine qualities, which are sufficient to position come from away as a possible feel-good hit. Many of us are, after all, in a mood to think of ourselves as improvable by contact with Canadians. The message of our common humanity, that we all come from away in a sense, could hardly be timelier. But even open-hearted locals may rankle at the glibness of the moral expressed at the end of the show. We honor what was lost, but we also commemorate what we found. Do we? In this cute musical, there's a lot more of the latter than the former. Anyway, all the commemoration in the world cannot turn civ a civic virtue like kindness into a dramatic one. So he got a lot of pushback for that sentiment. But I have seen it expressed from other people who were, specifically people who were in New York at 9-11, I think, have some like real trauma with it that I think like I kind of understand why they would be rubbed the wrong way by this sort of feel good treatment of it mm -hmm. even though it is a true story it's not like uh I don't know I think it's it's complicated yeah like a feel good 911 musical is really um it's a tough line to walk and I think they were successful judging by like generally the critics really loved it audiences obviously really love it I also think that at this point, 9-11 as an event has permeated into our life and culture in almost every way describable that if you actually like did sit down and like think about how, you know, everything has changed so much in the past 20 odd years, I think that I could see how seeing like this in some ways like superficial feel good story about it could make you very angry yeah and it kind of reminds me of and there was there was actually some press about it about how like I think there is kind of this like fetishization of Canada among Americans and also amongst Canadians as being like America but like without any of America's problems like mm -hmm. they're America but good <laughs> and it's like America definitely has a lot of problems but so does Canada and I mm -hmm. think it's like you know, like all of this press around Justin Trudeau seeing it with Ivanka Trump, which is yeah. like, ugh. But also how everyone was like, oh my God, Justin Trudeau, like he's so handsome. And now it's like, and he also did blackface like 10 times, you know? Yeah. Like Canada has tons of problems with like institutional racism.
racism, all of this stuff. It's not this perfect utopia. Yeah, well, it is funny that this musical comes out at the time when everyone, there is kind of this like Facebook sentiment of the time of like, if Trump wins, I'm moving to Canada. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I think another show that I wouldn't, or another work from this season that I wouldn't necessarily plug it into as having parallels is probably sweat i mean i think that like in its structure and how it's being based off of um you know these this these oral histories of people in this you know small pennsylvanian town feel kind of similar but i think that both of them sort of have this message of like i think the sweat's message or one of them is that this like painting of like us versus them in America and that the people who live in the Rust Belt are, you know, like evil Trumpies, you know, e- yeah. evil Trump supporters is like not true. And like, you know, everyone's more complex than they put on and everyone is kind of like working for a common good, um, even if the media narrative has kind of made it us versus them. Mm-hmm. And also, I I don't know why I didn't really actually put this together, but in Gander, they call people who are strangers come from a ways, and that's why it's yes. called come from away. <laughs> yes, it's it's very it's you know I'm like I I do think you know I got some nitpicks with it because I think you know we're here to do a little nitpicking, but I think overall, like I think if this had closed quickly like it would have been a real it would have been very sad it would have been a real loss so I'm happy that it's you know found its audience it's touring it's I think this is really a a success story of a little show that could which I think we're both all for yeah and I also think that you don't see a musical that like so many tourists love and that has this type of life that has so little spectacle i mean it the most there's no like huge sets it's mostly just like 12 chairs and trees on stage yeah know? it reminded me a little bit of once like having the mm-hmm. like having the band on stage also in the style of music but like you know less melancholy more high-spirited yeah um and the, i think one of the big upsets of the night was christopher ashley the director winning best director because i think people maybe saw that as a place where a great comic could sneak in because that is such a huge achievement, such a huge spectacle, like a lot of moving parts. But Christopher Ashley, as we mentioned, who is, you know, the director of Xanadu, who's really good at sort of keeping the momentum going, you know, making all of these, like making these small shows seem bigger than they are. Mm -hmm. I wonder what's next for David and Irene. (laughs) I saw an article from 2017 saying that Come From Away was going to be made into a movie and that they were going to help adapt it. But It seems like that's probably not on the fast track because they don't want to cut into ticket sales. It also seems like something that might die in a movie. It just feels like so much of it is about this like kind of documentary theater style that it relies on. And like sort of the abstract staging, like multiple, you know, casting, double casting, double, triple, quadruple casting. Didn't they make a Laramie Project movie? They did. Nobody talks about it. No, no. Well, it's also interesting, too, because the band's visit was a movie first, and then they adapted it to the stage. And I think that the set of the band's visit is, like, so naturalistic. It's, like, so rooted in naturalism that I wonder if it hadn't already been a movie and had those, like, visual cues, like, if the set of it wouldn't have been so literal. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I feel like it's definitely a piece of material that would open itself up to this kind of, like, more abstract staging and, like, minimal staging in future productions. Also, I have a bone to pick with my mother's Jewish lesbian (laughs) Wiccan wedding. Apparently, it's not based on anyone's... (laughs) It's totally based on fiction. Wow, it's rude. I I felt the (laughs) rug being torn from under me. It's also funny that the Canadian... I think Michael Rubinoff is his name, was, like, the Canadian lawyer, theater producer, professor who kind of like sought out this to be made into a musical and he was like oh yeah like this great show just played at the fringe like (laughs) these are the people to like talk all this like you know feel good (laughs) 9-11 story well he was right yeah I guess yeah he was (laughs) but I hope everyone who uses that title construction of like my blank 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 is paying uh, royalties to Nia Vardalis because she really um yeah she really brought that into the culture And no one is acknowledging her contribution. Their Tony performance is really sweet. Yeah, I think it really sold the show. 
mm-hmm. very well. Um, my biggest complaint is that I feel like the lyrics for the show are a little pedestrian. Even like that song, Me in the Sky, which is the one that you were mentioning earlier, I would rather there be no rhymes than like, you know, these cheesy rhymes. And I don't know. You know, I feel like, and I don't like to be one of those people who's like, they don't, you know, write musicals like they used to. But I do feel like lyric writing as a craft is something that people like do not pay as much attention to because I think it's like not as important in pop music. And that's like the background that a lot of people are coming from yeah and i think that you know a few seasons ago when we see something like fun home that i think lisa crone is like primarily a playwright dramatist actress it's interesting to compare those lyrics with the lyrics from any of these four best musical shows or yeah. best musical nominees the one last thing i'll say is this is goes back to like the set I think that so many people are like, the one thing I remember from 9-11 was like how blue the sky was. And that's kind of like become this like signature come from away color that Mm -hmm. was something I didn't think of. But, you know, like whenever I think of the show, I like think of the blue that's kind of used in the poster. So that's like a cool tie in. Oh, yeah. I never made that connection. It's very interesting. I feel like they should also like I can't tell if it was like a hat tip or unintentional to Sondheim because the the interval that they use in the like you are here refrain is it exactly the same as the one in I'm still here I am That's actually an interesting point because I think that there is kind of in this score, there feels like there is some sort of there's like an element of like pastiche and meshing in things. But like, I wonder to, you know, this is probably like a more clear example or like a more obvious like example of them taking something like they in several cases like reference like my heart will go on and it's like yeah. I wonder if Celine Dion just like was like this is you're Canadian <laughs> like yeah I'll yeah. let you use my song but <laughs> you know I bet that's exactly what happened <laughs> <laughs> like I just wonder that in this style of show where like there's, there's like a small band and like it's kind of pastiche and you know not you know in quotes like writing theater music I like wonder how much of it is like being like oh yeah and like let's take a little from that and a little from this and you know just jam it out <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah welcome to the park welcome to the trees to the ocean and the sky and whatever's in between to the ones who left you never truly got a candle's in the window and the candle's always on when the sun is coming up and the world is coming short So I think I just want to talk about Miss Saigon very briefly because I don't think there is a lot worth talking about, but well, one, the most important, not the most important thing, but this is our first introduction to Eva Noblezada plucked straight from the Jimmies to be a Broadway star. That was something that I remember while we were watching this ceremony in real time, both of us being like, oh my God. So the thing that I want to talk about is that, so it's introduced by Lea Salonga, who, you know, obviously originated that role. And then it's her co-presenter is John John Brionis, who played the character of the engineer in London to great acclaim, but was not even nominated for a Tony here, which is fucked up because going back to the original production, there was a big scandal because that role, um, which is supposed to be an Asian character in the original production, was played by Jonathan Price, who is a white actor. And when the production was going to transfer over to America, like actors equity, when you're taking a production from England to America, like you have to sort of negotiate which actors can come over because obviously they want American actors to get jobs. And they basically said he can't come over because he's doing yellow face and that is offensive to, you know, Asian Americans. And Cameron McIntosh was like, if you don't let us bring him over, we're going to cancel this production. So they let him come over and he won the Tony. So finally, you have an actual Asian actor playing this role and he is not even nominated, which is really, uh, I think, is pretty gross. Ugh, yeah. No, that's totally sucks. 
And supposedly he was excellent. Like, I don't think it's like, you know, he should just be nominated because he is the correct race for the role. But people really loved his performance. So, you know, boo to you, Tonys. Um, And he was also in the assassination of Versace, American Crime Story. He played Andrew Cunanan's father. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it raises a lot of questions because he's like, so this is the Tonys. Yeah, exactly. He has a little kind of like snide, not snide, but like he, I feel like that's sort of a reference to it. Yeah. So this is the Tonys. Yes. Yes. Wow. Are you okay? Yeah. All right, here we go. You know, Miss Saigon is a show that has a lot of, again, a lot of controversy, which I think, you know, we don't need to talk about until we get to that year. But Mm -hmm. it's touring around here uh, at the beginning of next year. So I think I'll finally see what all the fuss is about. No one can stop what I must do. I swear I'd give my life Um, Hi, hello from the future. So while we were editing this episode, we were talking about it and we decided that we want to put a warning right here. Obviously, one of the major plot points of Dear Evan Hansen is suicide. We don't discuss it very graphically, but if that's something that will upset you to hear about, um, you should probably skip to the end of the episode. All right, let's get back into it. Now let's uh, do the big one. Dear Dear Evan Hansen. 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 <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen, <laughs> opening date December 4th, uh, 2016. Closing date, there is none because it's still running. We're currently at 1,168 performances um, as of today, and it features a book by Stephen Levinson and music by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, directed by Michael Greif and choreographed by Danny Mefford. And its source material is nothing. It's one of the true original stories that everyone seems to want in musicals. (laughs) Dear Evan Hansen tells the story of a young man with social anxiety disorder who so yearns to make a connection with his peers that he fabricates a relationship with a deceased student to become closer to the boy's family. When a classmate commits suicide, shy Evan Hansen finds himself at the center of the tragedy and turmoil. In a misguided attempt to comfort the boy's grieving family, Evan pretends that he was actually good friends with their son. He invents a fabricated email account to prove their friendship. And when a fake suicide note makes its way online, Evan finds himself the unintentional face of a viral video about loneliness and friendship. As his social currency skyrockets, Evan is drawn deeper and deeper into the lie. Eventually, Evan is forced to make a decision. Will he give himself over to the fantasy he's created, or will he bite the bullet and risk losing everything he's ever wanted? I just want to say that stan culture really scares me, so I'm scared to talk about this show. Yeah. Because the fans can be extremely intense. (laughs) Yes. This season has made me reflect a lot on my teenage self and like my teenage Broadway fan self and like if I would have liked the show like if it had come out when I was uh, in high school and I feel like even then I was like very deliberate about separating myself from like the teen angst shows of that era like Spring Awakening and Next to Normal so I feel like probably not not that like you know being a Sondheim teen is any less insufferable (laughs) but I feel like if I was a teen during the season I would have looked down on Dear Evan Hansen and been obsessed with the Great Comet. Yeah, I wonder what I would have thought about this because I didn't totally dismiss Spring Awakening at the time. I think that there were some of the big bangers from Spring Awakening I got really into. Like, I love... I I still uh, get the bitch of living on my... uh, Oh, no, me too. Once I, like, got over myself, (laughs) you know, like, stopped hating and learned to love Spring Awakening... But I feel like I had to do that once I was no longer a teenager. And like, I feel like, let me amend that to say, like, I would have publicly denounced Dear Evan Hansen, but like secretly been rocking out to the cast recording yeah. <laughs> in the privacy of my my own iPod. When you went to see it a few months ago, were there a lot of teens in the cast? 
I mean, in the in the audience, rather. <laughs> well, actually, there were a lot of teens in the cast. I saw it right after. I saw it right after the new Evan Hansen, who I mean, I think he's seventeen now, but he was sixteen at the time. Was playing Evan Hansen. I don't know. I was. I think there were. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to the audience, but I think like these shows teens love them but don't necessarily have the opportunity to see them Mm -hmm. especially on broadway especially if it's like a hot ticket like dear evan hansen although i was seeing it you know two years into the run Mm -hmm. so it was i think a little less difficult you know they're probably mostly consuming it through the cast recording through bootlegs Mm -hmm. through through the tour maybe that's sort of my read on on being a teen broadway fan yeah no i think that checks out with everything I know. I feel like that's a question I've been asking in recent years of like, who was in the audience? But it's like, there's no way to like really, (laughs) you know, a big group of people who have the money to buy a theater ticket all pretty much look the same. And I think exactly, you know, there are certain cases where there will be like noticeable you know, like the men's line at the Angels in America <laughs> revival was something I'd never seen before. But I think in general, you know, you're going to, especially with like a show that is more on the family side of the radar than something else. But then I think the thing about this is that it's not really a family show. Like it's about teens, but it's it deals with some pretty dark stuff Mm -hmm. you know it's not like mean girls yeah i don't know i mean obviously they've had no trouble finding an audience so this started pask and paul this was like really at the height of their domination because they also had la la land at the oscars that year Mm -hmm. so they were just a couple months after winning their oscar for you know best song so this started in dc and there was a piece in the washington post in 2015 for one of the early versions talking about kind of the genesis of this there's an interesting paragraph about like what we've been talking about what we're always talking about which is original musicals versus musicals based on other intellectual properties but i thought this was interesting plays virtually always are born at the desk of a playwright while it's not a hard and fast rule by any means musicals are far more likely to start in the business office It's really very much a producer's art form these days, observes Dana Pirro, a composer. The perception has grown in the business that a musical, often carrying an investment north of $10 million, has a better chance of breaking through commercially if it bears the title of a well-known movie. And producers line up to make these. One Broadway veteran showed me a list of the movies that are in various stages, from the talking to the singing, of being developed into musicals. It was three pages long, single-spaced, and contained more than 100 titles. Ventures that are following in the footsteps of such celluloid-to-Broadway transformations as Ghost, Legally Blonde, Shrek, and this past season's Finding Neverland. But it's also true that there remains an extra degree of esteem in theater circles for shows assembled out of material dreamed up organically for the stage. That is borne out in the awards bestowed of late. Of the past 10 Tonys for Best Musicals, for example, only three have gone to shows made from movies, Kinky Boots, Once, and Billy Elliot the Musical. And even those were based on properties from way outside the Hollywood mainstream, European movies on small budgets. Other shows winning Broadway's top accolades these days, such as Fun Home and A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, are adapted from niche novels, or like The Book of Mormon and In the Heights are built for the theater from scratch. So I thought that was an interesting breakdown because I've never really like done mm-hmm. the math in that way. I mean, even though it may end up being commercially lucrative, the Tonys are still kind of resistant to these mm-hmm. blockbuster movie adaptations yeah and it is funny to see things like mean girls and even more recent beetlejuice not getting any attention at the tonys but doing totally fine box office wise and having like a really solid fan base and keeping their wheels turning so the script is based on an experience that Pasek had in high school one of his classmates died and he was struck by the fact that so many people were trying to you know claim that the student was their friend And I think it's interesting that this show seems sort of like it's fighting with itself where like the score is very sentimental and the book is very, it seems like very cynical. Mm -hmm. Before watching a production of it, I had just listened to the cast recording and like, I don't think that I necessarily imagined how it all fit together because I feel like the songs do have like a very adult contemporary pop feel, like soft pop. 
Which I think some of the songs are extremely beautiful and great. I think so too. But uh, yeah, I don't think I expected the book to be so dark and depressing. (laughs) Yeah, like I think it can't really tell if it wants to be a satire or not, like something like Heather's or there's this Robin Williams movie called World's Greatest Dad, which has a very similar plot. It's about Robin Williams. He's a failed writer and English teacher and he has this like shitty teenage son and the son accidentally kills himself while he's doing like autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, (laughs) Um, And Robin Williams writes like this beautiful, sensitive suicide note for him. And then like the note ends up going viral. That is like a super, super dark comedy. I don't know. I think it maybe does a better job of dealing with kind of like the the rise and fallout of that kind of decision that I think this show sort of shies away from because I don't know. Like, no, I think that that's totally true. Like, I think they really go out of their way to make us identify with Evan right away with his mm-hmm. his first big song waving through a window i think that like anyone who has gone through any kind of social anxiety like feeling isolated basically just been a teenager like i think it's really hard not to identify with that song i've learned to slam on the brake before i even turn the key before i make the mistake before i lead with the worst of me Give them no reason to stare No slipping up if you slip away So I got nothing to share No, I got nothing to say And then to sort of put that against what he ends up doing over the course of the show, like, I mean, I think that's a really interesting tension, but I don't think it ends up, like, fully... They don't really stick the landing. I think kind of going back to like the other, you know, like Heather's and World's Greatest Dad. I think that I think in Hilton Al's review, he brings up Little Shop of Horrors, which also features like, you know, I think. Evan Hansen and Seymour Krellborn are two of musical theater's greatest nerds. Yeah. But yeah, I think that like because the subject matter is put through this teen lens, I think that sometimes it felt like a little too earnest for me. And I think I would have either liked it to be darker than it is or to be more silly than it is and i think like the silly moments are when it works the best Mm -hmm. like i think the song where he and his friend are sort of making up the fake emails yeah i love that one like that is both so funny and so dark like i think that's really the tone that that's when the show is working best for me i like my parents who says that i love my parents but each day's another fight if I stop smoking drugs, then everything might be all right. Smoking drugs. Just fix it. If I stop smoking crack. Crack. If I stop smoking pot, then everything might be all right. Yeah, and I think that, like, Evan's relationship with his mom makes me just feel sad. I think it's, like, a really well-developed relationship and, like, a really real relationship between, like, a mother and her son. And I think it actually, you know, is probably something that... It speaks to the teen audience so well because it is not just, like, oh, I'm a TV sitcom mom. You know, (laughs) it is like, oh, you know, she's a working mother who's trying to, like, make her own life happen, but... I think it's also illustrated to me how far I am from being a teenager. And I think I finally (laughs) have enough distance to be like, wow, she's like treating him like a kid. But it's like, yeah, (laughs) he is a kid, you know. I I also really like the relationship with his mom. And I think it's not a mistake that the mom, well, the moms have the opening number and his mom also gets the 11 o'clock number. Mm -hmm. So it like, it really has this nice perspective. And when I saw it, I saw it with my boyfriend's family and his brother and sister in law have three kids under the age of eight and they were like an absolute wreck at the end of it so I think you know like I think coming from perspective of being a parent who's trying so hard for your kid and you're doing your best but it doesn't seem to be good enough like I think it really like hits those it hits you where you live in that arena going back to Like, I just think it's so interesting seeing what people take away from the show versus what my perception has been about what it's about. Like, I think, you know, people are prioritizing feeling seen by the character and the character of Evan Hansen and sort of seeing what they want to see in terms of what the show is about. I think especially you will be found. Like, I saw it as being this empty social media sentiment that's, you know, based on lies. And I don't know, it seems like there's sort of a disconnect between text and uh, interpretation. 
which which I think is interesting. Yeah, no, it totally is. And I also think that, like, I think that there's something to be said about, like, examples of theater that really permeate into popular culture. And I think that in some ways, Hamilton feels like an outlier for this thing that I'm trying to describe. Because I feel like Dear Evan Hansen and maybe something like Rent, it is just, like, really interesting to, like, see people really attach themselves to, like, a contemporary story in mm-hmm. a way that they, like, take theater music and it extends itself out of the context of the show. Yeah, like, it has a life of its own. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of people criticize the show by being like, well, the show is bad because Evan Hansen is a bad person. And it's like, well, that's not... I mean, like, I think having a show about like a complex protagonist doing morally ambiguous things. I think that's interesting. That's where the tension of a narrative comes from. Like nobody wants to see a show about a perfect person always doing the right thing. But I think the question is whether or not how sort of the world of the show treats it and treats him. And ultimately his lie, he reveals himself to the family, but they don't say anything. He's totally like manipulated and traumatized them and he's not revealed to the world that he was lying did you read the dear evan hansen you were a creep article yes i did (laughs) i have i have some pull quotes from it should we yeah okay so there have been a lot of like evan hansen takedowns and there were some that are very intense i think this one is a little more measured Mm -hmm. and this is from slate slate i think is also the one that published the uh the spam a lot takedown so i think they're just here for your hot best musical takes. So this is called Dear Evan Hansen, You Are a Creep. (laughs) A self-serving fabulist exploits the suicide of a high school classmate by peddling a fake connection to the dead boy. The con man revels in the resulting internet fame, which wins him popularity and even the sexual attention of the boy's grieving sister. What a creep, right? What's remarkable is that this character is no villain. He's one of the most beloved protagonists of the theater season, the titular hero of the likely best musical Tony winner, Dear Evan Hansen. Oh, I guess so this was before the Tonys. Mm-hmm. That Evan Hansen is not just a kind of hero, but one whose story will stay with a generation of young theater goers forever is a testament to the power of skillfully crafted art to reframe, manipulate, and even obscure moral concerns. If Dear Evan Hansen was a prestige television series, chances are the moral ugliness of this character would have been explored to a greater extent. But this musical isn't looking to tell a complex anti-hero story. It plants itself firmly in the tradition of the simple outsider narrative, the story of a lovable outcast whose self-actualization comes from a struggle with an intimidating establishment. The choice to give Evan Hansen no comeuppance doesn't make dramatic sense, but you don't need to be cynical to see its commercial and emotional logic. Not giving voice to anger at Evan Hansen avoids the more unpleasant ramifications of his exploitation of a tragedy for his own personal gain, which might complicate the audience's reaction to him. So, you know, I think it makes good points, but it's, I don't know, I think it's like a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, and it's also just interesting because I think that one could argue, too, that as a teenager, and I think that this is like something that probably could be accomplished in a novel better than any sort of theatrical adaptation is that he doesn't actually understand the weight of like what he's doing and you know he- well it has been novelized yeah because <laughs> it's like when you are a teenager I feel like this conception of death and suicide probably I think it feels like a little abstract and I think that it's taken me the time from when I was a teenager to now to really like understand the ramifications of someone taking their own life yeah and like I don't think I understood that even though you know we live in a culture that in popular culture suicide is such a common plot point in things I don't think I like excuses it and like I also think that the stunned silence that Connor's parents have is not satisfying I guess in like a dramatic structure sense but I think that Evan Hansen is more complicated than I thought it would be. Yeah, and also to have your inciting dramatic incident be a suicide, that is setting the stakes so high right off the bat, and then to not be able to sort of bring it home with the follow through, like sort of be afraid to take it as far as it needs to go, like whatever that would mean. I mean, obviously they made the right choice in terms of its commercial appeal and the critics really loved it. But actually, you know, it's interesting. I was reading that the Toronto production is closing much sooner than like it the Toronto production kind of flopped like they redid the whole theater for it like they made the theater blue and it just was yeah and it just was like people were just not feeling it there for whatever reason and I think it already is like maybe my most controversial musical opinion is that 
all musicals should be period pieces because otherwise they're just going to be immediately dated. And if you're not like addressing that when you're writing it, it's going to like age like milk. And I think already the way this show deals with social media, like both in the book Mm -hmm. and in like the extremely ugly set, it already feels out of date. That's actually, you know, a really good opinion. (laughs) You know, like something that I think I was feeling but didn't necessarily like put into words well it's also just i think also the problem of adults trying to narrativize and like make a story around the inner workings of teens and also this new component of like technology and how it's affecting you know people's like high school experiences like i don't think people are going to be performing this in 70 years like oklahoma yeah (laughs) like there's it's definitely not a timeless show i just think that thinking of this book our musicals ourselves which is a social history of American musical theater. Something like this, like in a survey of musicals addressing like contemporary problems in American society, I feel like this will like have its chapter there, but I don't necessarily, with the exception of some of the songs, which I think are very good, really withstand the test of time. Also, I'm very excited for Ben Platt to um, age into the Joel Grey of our era. Yeah, I mean, I think the score, I'm not usually a fan of these power pop style scores because I think they can be a little bit bland, but I think this one is very, it's, you know, they got the hooks, they got, I think it's a good score. I think that if I could control the Tonys, I would have, this is a little crazy. I don't, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I think I would have had Come From Away win Best Musical and this still win Best Score. I don't think that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) This show is just for our, our hot takes. Yeah. I'm sure they both would still be running even if it didn't win like every Tony. I think so too. But on the subject of Ben Platt, like I think, you know, a lot was made of his performance and his particular interpretation of the character really smoothing over these things that we've talked about, the troubling elements of it. He got a huge New York Times profile leading up to the Tonys. And I kind of think it might have been nepotism damage control because obviously he is extremely talented, but his father is like the producer of Wicked and La La Land. Mm -hmm. So he comes from this incredibly powerful show business family, specifically Broadway family. This article is like a love letter to him. And it also really makes you worried about him. There's a lot of hand wringing about the toll that playing this character takes on him. Yeah, that's something that I remember from the time, this like idea that it was wrecking him internally, <laughs> which is really <laughs> troubling. Yeah, he's very, very cute in his acceptance speech. Holy crap. Okay, okay, fast, fast, okay. This is a Tony. Hello. Okay. Okay. Wow. Uh, When I was six years old, I was the prince in Cinderella in a blue sequin vest at the Adderley School in the Palisades in California. And I've spent every single day of my life since then just madly in love with musical theater. It's where I found everything I've ever loved and where I I belong. And I'm just, I've dreamed every day since of being on this stage and, and being part of this community of artists. So this is insane he has really funny reactions to kevin spacey <laughs> which oh, yeah. i think well, he's like i need to stay away from that guy <laughs> yeah rescue ben platt from kevin spacey please but also a funny little story is he went to um i believe harvard westlake with one of my friends for high school and her mom saw him in a production of the music man and she said he is so talented he's going to be on broadway one day like i think he still would have been successful without those connections but it seems like they were trying to get out ahead of that story to be like no no like, they had a quote from the book writer being like, I didn't even know who his father was until, like, a year into the process. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't. So he wins, and also Rachel Bay Jones, who played his mother, wins. And something I thought was very cute, which I don't think I clocked the first time I saw this, but we had multiple instances of Tony winners presenting Tonys to their former co-stars. Because mm-hmm. we had Patina Miller giving Rachel Bay Jones the Tony and they were both in Pippin together and Patina won the Tony. And then Sutton Foster gave the Tony to Gavin Creel and they were in Thoroughly Modern Millie together. It's just very sweet. And they're all, they're all very excited. Like she gives him a huge hug. Wait, was Christian Borrell nominated for best supporting actor? I think he was nominated for lead actor. Uh, Okay. So there there wouldn't be any (laughs) possible situation. Any interaction. Of her having to give it to her (laughs) ex-husband. I know. Well, after they humiliated her by having, her ex-boyfriend and his new wife give it to him 
in 2015. Oh, so then they do, um, for their performance, they do waving through a window, obviously. And something, uh, a little Easter egg, you know, tapping on the glass also could be a reference to uh, a phone, like scrolling through social media. Oh. Waving through a window. So I guess the last thing to talk about for this episode is the other big winner, the big revival winner, which was Hello, Dolly. Yeah, which was like not a surprise to anyone, I don't think. No. And I think this was really like the real winner of the season, I think, was Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin versus the Tonys, I remember watching that lead up the whole promotional campaign for hello dolly like he wasn't really releasing any pictures from it they didn't do any performances on any shows he was very much you know keeping it under wraps and in the lead up to the tonys everyone was like well they have to perform hello dolly and he was like if you want to see hello dolly you can bring the camera into the theater and we can broadcast it from there and the tonys were like no and he was like well, then we're just going to do Penny in my pocket. And everyone was like, you're not really going to do Penny in your pocket. And like some people thought that this was like a fake out and like they were going to do Hello, Dolly. And then when they bring out David Hyde Pierce, everyone's like, okay, they're <laughs> they're doing it. Yeah. And there was also this like bullshit excuse or, you know, I don't know how bullshit it was, but that it wasn't safe to like have everyone doing the Hello Dolly waiters gallop, but I don't believe it. I think it's kind of bullshit because it's like every show has to readjust to the new Mm -hmm. stage size and shape. I mean, whatever, like everyone, everyone lived, nobody got hurt. It was all fine. Mm -hmm. David Hyde Pierce was a very good sport and he was excellent in the show. But like, I feel like Scott Rudin needs to be stopped because the other big news item about this revival is how expensive it was and how expensive it was to see it with Bette. Mm -hmm. I ended up seeing it three times. I saw it twice with Donna Murphy and once with Bernadette Peters and all those three trips combined were less than the cost of what it would have been to see it with Bette one time. All respect to Bette, I care more about Donna Murphy and Bernadette Peters. Yeah, no, true. And we saw a Donna and Bernadette together. Yes. I love Bette. I think she's great. She has a great acceptance speech when she wins Best Actress. And I, and I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say, revival, shut that crap off. I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say, I just want to say that revival is an interesting word. It means that something is near death and, and it was brought back to life. Hello, Dolly never really went away. It has been here all along. It is in our DNA. It is in the national. Jerry Herman songs will live forever. Um, It's optimism. It's democracy. It's color. It's love of life. It's hilarity. This is a classic. Come and see it. It's absolutely. It's not just me. The whole thing is utterly. This thing has the ability to lift your spirits in these terrible, terrible times. Come and see it. I obviously love Bernadette, but I thought Donna Murphy was so good in it. That was my first and first and only live Donna Murphy experience. And I thought she was just so good in it. Yes, she was excellent. We're all team Donna on this podcast. Yeah. Not just because she follows us on Instagram. <laughs> it, it was like a beautiful, stunning revival. It's also amazing because there's just like no... Yeah, I think I remember trying to find videos of it on YouTube. And yeah, they didn't do any of the shows. They didn't. No. But when Bernadette does step in, there is a really fun segment where she and Victor Garber go on The View and they do like a push-up contest <laughs> that I um, oh, recommend yes. that everyone watch. Yes, I love that. Um, but every time we saw Hello, Dolly, that was like 
like one of the most hyped audiences I've ever yeah. been in. Like even not seeing Bet, like people were applauding it at the overture, like for Hello Dolly, the song. It's like these people are ready to see Hello Dolly. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was very happy. I bought myself an acre, a silo, and a steed. All yonkers started buying my grain and hay and feed, and now I have a million. But proudly I confess that in my pocket is that penny, is that shiny little penny, is that penny that's the secret of my success. As far as the other best revivals, though, go for that year, it was really sad for me that falsettos... I thought that the Falsettos revival, I only saw the uh, televised recording, but I thought it was wonderful. Falsettos is a big gap in my knowledge, and I didn't I didn't watch the thing in preparation for this because it is kind of a footnote of this mm-hmm. season, but I'm excited to watch it when we get to that year. And I thought their performance was very good. It was very like when I was watching it, I was like, this seems like an act two opener, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> it felt very like we're sort of letting you know where everyone's at, but it doesn't feel like our first introduction to these characters. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's nice that they got to perform at all since it was like a limited revival yeah. and it had already closed. Yeah. Oh, and you could also see Andrew Randall's full dick print in those little yeah. shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? Should we save for next time talking about the two performances that they did from non-nominated musicals, which were Warpaint and Bandstand, or do we want to save that for next Uh, time? Let's save it for next time. Okay. Here's a question, you know, if you want to give it to us between this episode and the next one, please explain to us, you know, we're always trying to make connections between the presenters and the shows that they're presenting. What is Keegan-Michael Key's connection to Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? (laughs) That's our... uh, our plea to you yeah when he's introducing it i'm like what is he even talking about i truly don't know so maybe a little something to chew on maybe he has some connection to josh groban okay cool that's it for this time next time we're going to talk about groundhog day natasha pierre and the great comet of 1812 we're going to talk about plays do tim's play corner I think that's it. So you can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. Rate and review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. And, uh, you know, if you feel like sending us an email or a DM or a comment, um, we love hearing from you guys. Yes, we love hearing from you. Yes. (laughs) Okay. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.